Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of technology, sports and entertainment. Today we have a fascinating conversation with some industry leading experts to give listeners an insight into some of the key issues developing in uh, sports investment technology right now. Uh, and we're really looking forward to getting into it. So without further ado, I will introduce our guests. Returning to the Sports Law Podcast are... Tom Reed, the Chief Commercial Officer at Sportsloft member Spock. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back on, Yanni. Excellent. And also returning is the Chief Revenue Officer of FIVO, Josh Rose. Josh, welcome back to the Sportsloft podcast. Good to be here, Yanni. Thanks. And joining us for the first time, and very much hopefully not the last, is Jenny Mitten. Jenny is the Director and Women's Sports Lead at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment. And she's worked on some of the biggest sports sponsorships around, including O2 and England Rugby, NatWest and England Cricket, BMW and the Olympics, and Virgin Media uh, for the Paralympics. Um, and she also advises uh, a number of fantastic organizations, such as the UNICEF UK Sport Advisory Board, the Sport and Recreation Alliance, uh, which is a government advisory group, and the Girls Rugby Club, which is global clubs uniting uh, to get girls to play the sport at any level. Given that today we're going to be talking about the rise of women's sport, it's fantastic to have Jenny in the Sports Off podcast. And Jenny, thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, guys. Thank you. Well, let's get going as we usually do with uh, our icebreaker, our favorite moment of the sporting week. And we were talking a little bit earlier, uh, Jenny, about uh, the rain causing what would have been one of your favorite moments to not uh, not come to fruition. So tell us a little bit about that and what actually replaced it as your favorite moment. Well, we're not going to talk too much about the cricket because I think there's some very happy people on our call about that result. But my sporting moment <laughs> is actually the Women's World Club. And it's not the Lionesses because, you know, they did put out the performance we wanted. It was Jamaica, France. You've got France, which has got a really strong side, and Jamaica, which had to crowdfund to get to the World Cup to get people to pay their expenses. And from their first game against a big European um, team, they've come away with a point, which I thought was fantastic. So that was my sporting moment of the week to get behind the Jamaica girls. Did you uh, did you stay up to watch it? Um, I didn't. I was one of those terrible fans that watched it back on replay. So I did the classic, had a look at Twitter, saw the fantastic results and commentary, um, and then went and watched it, watched it back. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely be talking about that in a second. Um, turning to the other half of that conversation, Tom, what was your favourite sporting moment of the week that doesn't include the Ashes? <laughs> Yeah, so I won't I won't mention the cricket, but it has actually been a pretty good week for Australia um, outside of the cricket. Uh, obviously, the Women's World Cup is on at the moment. The Matildas got a win to, to open up the tournament against Ireland, which was great. Um, but for me, it is uh, the the FINA World Championships are on at the moment, the swimming. There was a race which was dubbed as the greatest race of all time between Ariana Titmus, Australian swimmer, Katie Ledecky, the greatest swimmer of all time, and then Steph McIntosh, the rising star from Canada. Um, all three of those have held the world record in this in the the 400 meters uh, freestyle at various times throughout their throughout their lives, and uh, they were going head to head in this. And Ariana Titmus beat Katie Ledecky and Steph McIntosh and got the world record at the same time. So that was uh for me that was my that was my moment of the week. That's uh, I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that. Thanks for the tip, Josh. What's yours? Uh, so mine uh, was Messi kicking sort of the game winning goal for. Uh, Inter Miami CF and the MLS. Um, uh, FIVO is actually really tied to um, sort of that whole moment. Um, uh, Inter Miami is one of our clients, and uh, when they announced Messi, FIVO actually powered 
the new season ticket membership campaign um, on the news of Messi. Um, they basically sold out sort of memberships, you know, within sort of 48 to 72 hours. It was a really, really big moment. And uh, so there was obviously a lot of eyeballs on Messi coming to the MLS, a lot of interest. Obviously, everyone's been probably following the deal, right? He's participating in Apple Music, uh, excuse me, um, Apple TV streaming and retail. And it was a pretty, pretty sort of unique situation. And first game, game winning goal, like couldn't have couldn't have started off his MLS career any better. It's great when the stars really come out to play. You remember Zlatan Ibrahimovic coming out to to play his first game for the Galaxy and uh, and having an incredible performance against LAFC. Let's get to our topics. Part one uh, is to talk about the opportunity for women's sport. And people have been talking about this for a long time. And it feels like the momentum is is really starting to to gather now. Um, uh, investors are starting to dive in in, in, a, in a far more significant way. You see valuations in a variety of different leagues and clubs in the women's game uh, rising significantly. The deal of the year at the Sports Business Journal Awards was the deal that uh, Michelle Kang put together to buy the Washington Spirit. So, and that's across all deals in the in the sports industry. So we're starting to see a lot of a lot of traction, which is fantastic. Jenny, you referenced this specifically around um, uh, the uh, viral orange ad uh, that went out, which for those of you who haven't seen it is is well worth a watch, if nothing else for the technology, which is pretty mind blowing. Um, but just to just to summarize it, um, Orange said that they are supporters of Le Bleu. Uh, and used highlights of what seemed to be the men's team with audio over the top of it, scoring goals in a variety of different competitions. And then they rewound it and showed that what they'd actually done was taken the male players' faces and inserted them on the bodies of the female players in order to show that actually this game is just as good as the men's game. Um, And Jenny, you had a very interesting article recently uh, analyzing whether this was piggybacking off the men's game and not positioning the women's game as its own product. Just give us a synopsis of that to kick off the conversation. I will. It was, I love the debate. I mean, the first thing to note is, you know, for years we've been moaning about there not being enough ads around women's sport. And then last week we found ourselves all online shouting to each other about what we thought about all these ads that had just come out. I was like, what a wonderful position to be in. And I think what was really interesting about this ad, it kind of divided everyone into camps. So you had the orange ad and there was another ad by Bud, which had a certain Argentine famous player in it. And um, it was very focused on using the men's game to bring, in, to bring people into the women's game. And then on the other side, you had Nike who created a suite of ads mm. featuring a number of the, a number of players across the World Cup that just focused on the skill and, let's be honest, the sass of some of those incredible players. And then also Lego that, again, was very much focused on the kind of skill of the players. And it really split everyone in two between, do we focus on the fact that there is a great product on the pitch in most teams? We know that's not the case with everyone. Jamaica's a case point. They had to crowdfund their places to the World Cup. Or do we you know use the fact that men's sport can be a way to attract a whole new audience and pull them in. And I think my first reaction was like, we don't, you know, why should we be doing that? We should be focused on the skill, the athleticism, the excitement. But actually, I think what we've seen with women's sport, what's really interesting is firstly, it's bringing in a whole new audience. So if I was a rights holder or a brand, the first thing I would look at was, okay, if I'm in a passion, a passion sports space, that, you know, look at women's sport if you want to bring new eyeballs to your product or to your brand, because the majority of the audience is new. The second important point is this is really interesting that for a World Cup, so the biggest sports um, event on the planet, 
brands are now marketing at men. So they're obviously seeing research and insight that sh that's now showing that we can go after the men's audience. And what an exciting place to be in, because we're seeing in men's sport, Gen Z are falling, the numbers are dropping. And I think, guys, you're probably seeing this a lot in the US as well, where women's sport, they're really, really capturing that Gen Z audience and they're staying, they're buying tickets, they're becoming season ticket holders, they're subscribing to channels. So if I was a brand or a rights holder, I'd be like, you know, the men's sport is obviously, has it reached its pinnacle? How much more can it grow? Yet we've got this really interesting secondary product. It's a bit like having the commercial giants and the entrepreneur unit. You know, mm. if you're, this is a really general reference, but if you're Cadbury's, you have your core chocolate bar and then you bring in your boost, your flake, or your other products to boost your whole portfolio. I think investors need to see women's sport in the same space. And I think it's really exciting. So whilst there was a lot of debate around that ad, I actually think it's hugely pos positive that actually we're going after the men's sports funds now. And I think it really gives us a sort of a view of where the space, how the space is growing. Mm. And certainly for a long time, there have been some rather unenlightened views about the uh, strength of uh, women's sport and the relative values. Josh, to that point and to the point that Jenny just made, how are you guys seeing buying patterns? Because you obviously see a lot of this uh, coming through, right? For for clubs that have um, either clubs that have both a men's and women's team or uh, uh, purchasers in the same city where there is a men's and women's club. Are you seeing completely different demographics? Are you seeing overlap? How's that, how's that starting to manifest? Yeah, it's a terrific question. I think Jenny nailed it. This is a big moment for women's sport. Ultimately, you know, um, culture sort of is the first mover and, and business tends to follow, right? Um, and I think if you look at sort of um, what's happening around, you know, younger generation, like I'm a millennial, I'm obviously super tuned into the Women's World Cup. I have a four-year-old, we're going to watch some of the matches together. The Gen Z demographic is all over this. I think the female athletes generally do um, a better job as far as like social media following as well, which is why a lot of the younger demographic tends to gravitate towards women's sports. So um, yeah, this, th this is the moment for sure. If you haven't seen it, you're not paying attention ultimately. And I think Jenny makes another really good point too, which is um, it's sort of a rising tide lifts all ships sort of moment. Um, like if I'm running an NFL team or an MLB team in the States, you might say, well, that's totally uncorrelated with women's sport or women's football. I, I totally disagree. I would actually be throwing watch parties in my venue and sort of catering to this sort of next generation of customer who wants to support women's football or women's sports in general. It's a great way to sort of engage a new audience and you know, I think rights holders are also always looking for ways to capture more first party data. So this is an audience that brands and rights holders really want to be getting in front of, and they're going to have the biggest share of wallet ultimately as the, as the younger generation continues to grow, right? From a buying perspective, sort of to your question, um, it, it, it's a little bit of both. I think, um, you know, there's definitely opportunity to cross sell into sort of the men's demographic of fan. Um, and I think there's, there, we're definitely seeing some of that from a transactional perspective, but also just tons of net new customers, right? And, you know, I can definitely speak to, you know, sort of the U.S. market. If you look at the NWSL, I know you mentioned the spirit. Um, we work with a lot of the women's clubs in the States, um, Angel City, FC, Kansas City Current. And yeah, you're, you're building a sort of a sport from the ground up with, you know, basically 60, 70, 80% net new customers coming in. And I think that's really exciting. And as Jenny alluded to, I think that's something that a lot of brands are going to want to be involved in.
Mm. Obviously, the broadcasters play a huge, uh, a huge important role with this, and um, some some get more heavily behind uh, women's sport in, in countries. And Jenny, we'll get to a point that you made quite eloquently, I think, in your article about the relative um, development of of the women's sport in the UK compared to in France, and kind of you know, do you therefore have to? rely so heavily on the men's game when it is as developed in the women's game. But Tom, going back to the broadcasters and kind of how they how they support it, you, you guys are facilitating, uh, I think, is it 18 languages for, for this Women's World Cup, which is unprecedented. Correct. 18 languages with an entire female commentary team as well, I also want to add, which we're super excited about, which we've done for the first time for a major tournament. And just to have that many languages and to have that much talent available in all those different languages that can relay the story, that can tell the uh, the excitement of the sport is, is fantastic. Putting the rights debacle, if you want to call it a debacle, aside for one second, how has that journey evolved and how are you guys seeing the evolution of women's sport and are you getting more rights holders coming and asking you to to provide either secondary alternative or localized commentary for uh, women's leagues and events? Yeah, so I think from a production perspective for the sports production industry as a whole, so yeah, as you said, taking taking rights to the side of it, for the last five years, we've seen like a big increase in um, almost parity in production um, between between men's and female sports. So if you're if you're producing an event uh, with you know six cameras and um, a six camera setup for for a men's event, then you you're starting to see them do the exact same thing for the women's event. And um, because it's the product the production quality, uh, you know, in the past women's sport probably had a few less cameras. Uh, they try and cut corners, try and uh, cost saving on, on on productions, which was unfair for the sport uh, and um, and and the quality of the quality of the sport. But these days, you're seeing you know, a lot more parity in the production side of things. So the, the, the men's and women's games are produced almost exactly the same. And, and I mean, we see, we see that with, we almost have parity in the amount of, uh, the amount of sports that we're used for, uh, which is great. And then, I mean, for the, for the women's world cup, that's a, that's a good example. So like it's, we're doing 18 languages for the women's world cup, primarily for, for TSN, our partner in Canada, we've got the exact same contracts we had for the men's world cup. So, um, so they're treating it exactly the same themselves. They're like, well, if we did this for the, for the men's world cup, we're going to do this for the women's World cup as well. Which is, which is really fantastic to hear all the indicators are pointing in the right direction. Um, you know, as we said, increasing valuations, bigger attendances, uh, higher, um, higher viewership figures, but there still seem to be, um, a few things that aren't quite, uh, aren't quite working the right way. One of those, as we just talked about, Jenny, is the, is the, debate over how things are being approached and how sponsors are approaching it. Another very uh, similar point was the fact that Nike, is it Nike? Yeah, Nike um, decided not to produce goalkeeper kits um, for the Lionesses. It just blows my mind. Like I just, I just don't understand the, 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 the concept behind that. Talk to us a little bit about that. Why do those differences still persist? And is it a cultural thing? Is it that people don't yet see the value? Where do you think we can ascribe that to? I think it's the people at the top making the decisions, not being aware and not understanding the market well enough and probably not speaking to the players. If I was Nike and the team, I would have gone into the England camp, spoken to the players, talked about our plans and got, and got feedback. I think a really good example of that is a client we work with, O2. Is that, you know, they, they've been a long-term partner of England Rugby for 26 years. And with the women, they spoke to the RFU and they spoke to the players about how can we support you best? There's only so much we can do as a brand supporting you through marketing, but what can we do? 
And the outcome was in 2020, when most brands were actually and rights holders weren't supporting the women during the pandemic, O2 came forward and committed to a five-year contract with the RFU and committed to parity spend across the men and women. Every pound they spend on the men, they spend on the women. What a fantastic statement to put out to A, who you service, so the telco you service. You know, they've got 20, 30 million customers across the country. Half of those are women. Their staff and employees and call centers and stores across the country, they're placing equal value. And then more importantly, they're their partner. Both teams can go out with O2 really proud on their shirt because they know they value them equally. And I think that's probably the frustration of Mary Earp. Suddenly a brand is signaling your role on this team isn't as important as the others. When actually, if you look at the performance against Haiti, Mary Earp saved us on quite a few occasions. Um, and I think it's really important for the decision makers at the top to, and the teams around them to really think about these decisions. And I know there will be issues around spending and cost, but you should invest. Nike have got a lot of money. And to make such a clanger, if I'm honest, was quite surprising. Mm. To to kind of put it into context and uh, help to drive that message home to to the people at the top, how much um, data do you guys have that you can share about? Let's take the Lioness's success in Euro um, uh, 2022 as an example, right? What has the what has the increase in ticket sales, the increase in merchandise been as a result of that? Um, Jenny, we'll start with you and Josh. If you have anything from the from the Fivo side to contribute to that, we'd love to love to hear that. I think what was really interesting is we all kind of held our breath, didn't we? We were a bit like, is this going to work? Everyone after the tournament, everyone talked about legacy. And we we're like, is this just going to be a one shot wonder? And then we'll go back to where we were. And actually, what was exciting is the season on. The WSL has experienced, I think Sky reported 70% uplift in audiences, which is incredible. To see the ticket slots were taken, were up 300%. And then we've seen big teams like Arsenal, who have invested in the women's team, always sell out the stadium. And from that becomes huge ticket value revenues, as well as merchandise. So we have seen sustained uplift, which I think is really exciting. And then obviously we have the new co taking the lead into the, into the new area. But I think, again, what's fundamental to this is the decision-making behind the scenes. So the FA is invested. You had Barclays that made the biggest investment in women's sport in the UK commit to the league. And suddenly you've got long-term commitments so you can make long-term plans. And that's been able them to grow and they've actually made the most of that opportunity, which we don't see in every sport. And that's not to say we're perfect. So we saw this issue, obviously the Lionesses have been talking about the bonus issue with the FA. So it's sort of taking those small steps. And I think we can't, there isn't an endless pot of money. We can't invest in everything how we want. So we have to make strategic decisions. And I think that was the issue with, with the Nike decision, is making a strategic decision on how we support the team, the best way to do that. And I think that's where they got it wrong. Mm. Josh, did you have anything, um, uh, any sort of insight into the kinds of changes that have happened, whether it's from the success of the US women's national team going into the NWSL or conversely, the Lionesses into the, into the WSL over the past few years? Yeah, I mean, I think the trend is pretty clear, right? Um, the San Diego Wave, which are one of our partners in the NWSL, last season, they broke the NWSL attendance record. Um, and it wasn't, you know, taking two or 3,000 tickets to five or six or 7,000 tickets. It was literally selling 30,000 tickets to a match, right? And I think if you... Um, you know, look in the UK, you, you know, you're going to see women's super league, you're going to see matches getting put into the, into the men's buildings, into the larger stadiums, and they're going to sell those games out. So I think the trend is super clear. 
Um, this is a massive growth story. The network effect is really, really strong. And as Jenny alluded to, right, I think leadership and brands just need to lean in and make the investment. And I think those that do will see the ROI on the other side. For sure. And I think there's a lot more to come on this front, right? So rapid fire round the table. Um, we'll start with Tom. Who's going to win the Women's World Cup? Uh, if Sam Kerr is back from injury, it's going to be Australia. They've taken down uh, England, France, uh, and Spain in the last six months. So, I mean, I think that they're, they're them and the US are the form team coming into the tournament. Uh, if not, if Sam Kerr's not back, the US. All right. Jenny? Hate to say it, probably Germany. Oh, interesting. Did not expect that one. All right. Josh? I mean, you're you're asking the American, you know, who who he thinks is going to win, right? You, I think I think you know where my loyalties lie on this one, Yanni. <laughs> uh, so so not quite going to form. Jenny Jenny threw us a curveball on that one. I was pretty sure she was going to say the lionesses, but okay, uh, we'll we'll keep an eye out for Germany. Um, let's move to the next topic, which is uh, creatively titled: Is Netflix coming for live sports? So to put this into context, as, as, as we all know, and as we talk about slightly incessantly in the sports industry, Netflix and, um, and, and sports adjacent, um, I just did air quotes for those of you listening, sports adjacent programming, um, uh, sports programming has been tremendously successful for Netflix, uh, let alone some of the rights holders who've, uh, who've been involved with it notably Drive to Survive and Formula One. Everybody talks about the Drive to Survive effect that, uh, that has, um, uh, that has uh, some say saved Formula One. Personally, I think that that discounts the work that Liberty um, have done in terms of setting up the infrastructure to be able to take advantage of that tipping point. But the the, the impact is, is uh, doubtless a huge one. But then there's also been a hint of Netflix potentially coming into live rights uh, with potentially streaming a live golf competition. Um, there was uh, there were rumors about them bidding for the actual Formula One live rights uh, in the US as well. So first up, gut reactions. Do sports need Netflix? Um, and do sports need the drive to survive of insert sport here? Um, start with you, Tom. Uh do sports need Netflix? Uh, yes, sports does need Netflix. You look at um, the traditional broadcast, uh, the state of the traditional broadcast industry right now, it's in secular decline. Um, so they need a player like Netflix, which is now the biggest broadcaster in the world, um, to really start to go all in on the on, on the category just to sort of create the competition and to keep the the rights wave flowing in the, in the direction that it's going. Um, you know, Netflix along with the other... Um, the other major tech companies continuing to go all in is, is definitely needed for um for, uh, for for the sports industry definitely. Jenny, what's your view? I absolutely agree with Tom, and I think what's really interesting we're seeing some of those really exciting production companies that produce for the likes of Netflix, like Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine, now starting to move into the sports space, and especially women's sport. And suddenly you've got these fantastic directors and storytellers who can really elevate what we're doing. You know, we're used to sports reporting in the newspapers, we're used to like live TV show coverage, where actually, ultimately, people love a good story. This is why we buy movie tickets and sit in the cinema in the dark for two hours. And Netflix can bring that into your home and do that deeper piece. Um, so whilst I know everyone, there is a bit of a snide point around, oh, another drive to survive, they're obviously still working because, the you know, whilst Netflix is really sort of tight on its numbers, as are Amazon, they're still producing these shows. So there's clearly some interest there. And you look at you look at the the sports that have had success so far on Netflix. It's it's Formula One, 
uh, cycling, tennis, and golf, which are, are, um, are four sports, which are major, major global legacy, legacy sports brands, which have been either plateauing in popularity or, or even sort of in slight decline because they've got aging audiences. So those sports have been, we've seen the most success out of them because they've been able to now um, either tell their stories a bit more to a new audience, be able to reach the Gen Z audience a bit. So it's, um, it's certainly um, for, for those that marquee legacy sort of sports um, sports out there, it's a hugely important part of the um, of, of, of their um, of their media mix. Hmm. Very interestingly, also, um, I was I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, um, and and this is slightly off topic, but I think it's worth it's it's worth kind of rehearsing. Um, all of those are individual sports. Um, you know, yes, you can play doubles in tennis. Yes, you know, Formula One, you have conceptually, you have a teammate. But part of what makes it so interesting is how those battles transpire between teammates, how you can secure your your, your seat for the next season. Um, do, do you guys think that there's um, there is an added benefit to those individual sports of showcasing the personalities and seeing this movement that, Jenny, you were talking about, um, and Josh, you alluded to earlier as well, that a new generation is, is is being tied more to the performance of the athletes and the stories of the individual athletes than necessarily to, uh, to clubs uh, or to teams uh, overall. How's that? How are you? Um, how are you perceiving that, Josh? I, I mean, I think it's, you know, Netflix and sports is highly complementary, right, to one another. Um, I think you're seeing Netflix sort of considering dabbling more into this space because, frankly, they need to. Um, like, if you've been paying attention to the tech ecosystem over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, um, you know, Netflix got hammered last year. Um, subscriber counts were down. Growth was slowing. You're sort of seeing them... Um, test sort of a, an ad driven model, right? Which is sort of a new model. So I think Netflix is very much um, in experimentation mode. Like they have an appetite to sort of experiment and do new things. And then sort of as, as Tom alluded to, um, I think this is great for challenger brands or sort of, um, you know, sports that need help with distribution, right? Um, like, I don't think you're, you're going to see some of the more, sort of uh, premium legacy brands like an NFL necessarily come into Netflix, right? Um, Premier League come into Netflix. Like they have great distribution already, but you're going to see tennis, golf, Formula One, you know, there's almost 250 million subscribers on Netflix worldwide. So it's like they have crazy distribution. And I think, you know, to Jenny's point, if you can sort of wrap um, your brand with some storytelling, it starts to become highly sort of complementary to consider Netflix as a distribution channel for your brand. Mm. And it's not limited to Netflix, right? Because, you know, we've seen um, Amazon Prime more than dabble in live rights. Uh, you know, Apple is obviously coming in quite heavily. We've referenced the, the, the Leo Messi deal. How do you see, uh, how do you see the sort of landscape playing out over the next uh, over the next few years especially as more and more rights start to become available Danny right so you you have all of the traditional sports you have new formats in all of those traditional sports you have uh, women's sports coming out as a separate vertical which gonna ha- is going to have its own audience and then you have sort of the sports adjacent programming as well um, you spend your your day thinking about um, activating across all of these different channels and it must just be an absolute nightmare to try to figure out where to place what and who's watching whom and and where the best things are when you look in the crystal ball what do you see over the next few years from a um, a rights distribution standpoint 
Well, I think the starting point is audience behavior. And I think that for any rights holder, that is the key point. So you look at where are your audiences, where are they hanging out, where are they interacting? And I, I certainly know, you know, when I talk about my goddaughters who are classic Gen Z, when I'm like, yeah, should we chat? And I'm like, I'll WhatsApp you. They're like, Jenny, we don't use WhatsApp. Chat to me in Roblox. You know, we have to be thinking about where our audiences are hanging out and engaging and how do we take our product, our sports, them in those spaces. So I'm really interested to see how, you know, this is only going to accelerate in terms of how we cut up the rights and how we distribute them. I fully expect in a few years' time that you can drop into Roblox and you can see some highlights or something. And it'll, be in a, it'll be a way that it'll be ingrained into the game. It'll be part of the game in the format because that's where Gen Z, if you look across their day between maybe being at school or college, coming at home to seeing their mates, a lot of their time is in these virtual spaces where they hang out. So I think that's where I sort of see the future lying is, you know, more of this distribution. We don't know what the next, you know, big social platform is going to be after TikTok. There will be another one that the next generation will then jump on. I think it's really important for rights holders not to get set in their ways with old structures and old ways of delivering their rights and really to take a step back and think about, okay, on every new on every new cycle, how do we keep a set of rights inside and really challenge how we utilize them? Because that's what brands want as well. And unless you want to be bringing in the same brands and talking to the same people, you need to innovate. And Tom, you guys are ready to go with uh, multiple languages in uh, in virtual reality? Uh it's actually yeah it's actually it's actually something that uh we're we're, we're kind of working on so we'll uh we'll, we'll see see how that goes awesome the next question that follows on from that which is i think is a natural one is there hasn't been much focus on women's sports in uh, in all of these docu series that we've seen come out right formula 1 obviously and historically and 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 famously the preserve of uh of um male drivers and and owners um there's been a little bit around the uh around uh, break point the tennis one because the wta was involved with that um but not a huge amount um uh, if we have seen anything it's been more around individual storytelling uh, deepest breath for example with uh, alessia Tacchini, which is a fascinating story in and of itself um uh, and uh, the stories in uh, some docu-series around, for example, Billie Jean King and the movement for equal pay in tennis years ago and, and stuff like that. Jenny, what would you like to see um, in terms of focus uh, in telling those stories over the next few years? Well, I think firstly, you know, it's back to that storytelling point. There's a really missed opportunity. I would love to be in the corridors when the new co sets up. What are those conversations they're having about the future of the league? The same with the NWSL, you know, when we get this new Bay franchise in place, what those conversations at Sixth Street are having with their, you know, the team, how they set up this new club. We've just seen um, Angel City, I think it was HBO that ran their series. So I'd be really fascinated to see the results from that. And again, you know, we were getting a little bit under the under the belly and finding out the tough decisions they have to make, how the players are reacting to everything. And I think there's a really strong storytelling in there, which probably from the outset, the reason that, you know, these um platforms are going with the big men's tournaments because they have large reach right and ultimately they have to pay for eyeballs but i think now we're seeing a few of these shows go live it's a bit of testing the water um netflix actually recently released game on which is a brilliant documentary from suansis which is about the state of sports specifically in the uk um so again i think maybe that was a bit of a tester for them you know documentary stars quite a safe space because it's a broad subject and it hits um talking about equality and society so you get a broader reach I suspect that was them dipping their toe in the water. And I, I, I hopefully behind the scenes, they're looking at what their next women's sport documentary could be based on the, the success of Game On. Hmm. Do you, so, Josh, Tom, do you have a specific story uh, that you would love to, to, to see as a 
Netflix. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it was it's kind of already in the can and, and could be turned into one. But um, uh, Michaela Schifrin's um, quest to becoming the greatest skier of all time, uh, which she's been filming herself the entire time, releasing little things on on her own YouTube channel. Um, I think her story and it would be an amazing documentary that that, that Netflix should definitely pick up. Um, the Lindsay Vonn documentary, which was a couple of years ago, was uh, was was a really good one that HBO did, and and Michaela Schifrin's story to actually Lindsay's was like a fall short, heartbreak didn't get there, and then Michaela actually getting there and then pushing the record herself. I think is that I think could actually be a really really strong, really really good documentary that's that that's focusing on the success of women's sport, which um, I think we, you see a lot of the documentaries that are. Uh, made about women's sport uh, are more about issues around women's sport and i'd love to see a documentary that's focusing on on success um in, inside the sport which which i think would which i think was what that documentary would do yeah i think there's there's two i'd like to see um honestly one on the women's side and one on the men's side um on the women's side um would love to see sort of some, some storytelling around the NWSL in the States. Like it's been incredible, the growth. Um, Jenny sort of mentioned it. Fivo is actually working with Bay uh, FC on their um, season memberships. Um, sort of they're building that audience now, right? So they can start selling season tickets and sort of start to commercialize the fan base there. But it's, it's, it's sort of like once a year, there's a startup that just pops up and starts a new business, right? Um, and that's happened for the last sort of three or four years in a row where the NWSL is just adding all these clubs. And I think as Jenny sort of alluded to with Angel City FC, there's a lot of sort of tech and media and sort of celebrity prowess in a club like that. So I think all the ingredients um, around the NWSL are there for some storytelling. And again, back to sort of Netflix and distribution, it could be really complimentary as far as, you know, rising tide lifts all ships kind of moment. Um, and then obviously I'd love to see something on the um, sort of Wrexham, you know, side of things as well, which is like a really sort of interesting story. And, um, and uh, you know, buying a club for 2 million bucks, we'll see where that thing ends up in three, four or five years. But it's uh, it's been fun to follow. Actually, just to sort of jump back a, a second as well. And on the, on the top of what I said earlier around Formula One, Tour de France, uh, tennis and golf, which are, you know, global global brands, legacy legacy brands. The biggest global legacy brand right now that is in kind of in a bit of a decline is the Olympics. Uh, I feel that the Olympics, which is a sport brand, which is a parity or almost parity between men and women in terms of competitors, has a massive untapped resource in being able to tell its stories a lot better through the likes of a Netflix or an Apple or, or whoever in the four years in the lead up to the events. All these athletes, they they really struggle to get their stories told until that two weeks of the year that they're actually competing. So I, I think there's there's a, there's a huge opportunity there. There's a, a lot of amazing stories around Olympic athletes and um, outside of the Olympics, which can really be told and harnessed a lot better and could be some really really compelling content um, for for streamers. I totally agree with that. It's it's a pity that the Olympics don't have much money to be able to do that. You know, it's a really 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 <laughs> tight. Um, so uh, in, in conclusion, to, to wrap everything up, tell us, tell us a little bit, each, each of you, and we'll, we'll, we'll go in order, um, tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what your plans are to engage either with sports uh, in docu-series and kind of what you're looking forward to, to, to watching or to, um, to help promote women's sports. And it's going to be 
different for everybody. And I'm sorry, this wasn't on the briefing notes. I'm throwing you a complete curveball, and I realize that it's uh, it's completely off the bed. I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you what mine is uh, to kind of help start us off. Um, my daughter is seven years old and has historically showed zero interest in football outside of the the Euros, um, the men's and women's Euros. Um, and she's seen me watch Arsenal for my sins uh, over the past few years. She is notionally an Arsenal fan. She always tells all the Tottenham fans in her school that Tottenham is poo um, and, uh, and sort of gets in trouble for that. But when I told her that we could potentially go watch Arsenal women play, suddenly a light bulb went off in her head. And I think she suddenly realized, hang on a second, there's there's women who play for Arsenal? Is that is that is that possible? And so we sat down and explained it. And my commitment to her was that we would be going to as many games together as we could this year so that she can kind of start to engage with it. I don't think she'll ever be a football player. She's not like, she, she likes other stuff, but to be able to see and follow and appreciate and engage with that is something that, I'm really looking forward to and I'm really excited about. So, Tom, I'll pass over to you. Yeah. So from a from a work perspective, from a sport perspective, just continue to promote women's voices, um, whether that be yeah, women's commentators, get making sure that um, offering women's commentators opportunities not only for women's sport, but also for men's sport as well, just to really try and grow the commentary industry, which is uh, which is traditionally an incredibly male industry. I think, you know, something like nine out of every 10 commentators are, uh, these days are, are males and you know that just needs to change when everyone plays sport but not everyone has the opportunity to actually commentate sports so from a work perspective continue to drive that that to, to have a you know more even distribution of, of voices across all sports uh, and and from a from a personal perspective I um I remember as a kid going to basketball games and it was it back in Sydney and the double headers were so you would have the women's team would play it and the men's team would play and I remember as a kid I didn't know the difference between women's sport and men's sport was basketball. Like I, I like for me, um, my value was equal across both of them. But then somewhere along the way, there is a, a value change that goes in, in especially in young young men's heads. So to think that the men's sport is, is, is you know, above the women's sport or something, that lack of a better word. Um, so just to make sure that for, you know, for my kids and, and that, that that doesn't happen, that that doesn't change and that um, that everything is is seen as equal because really, it is women's sport is awesome to watch. Like the the sport can look slightly different, but it's it's still just as engaging. The stories are still just as great, uh, and the results are still the same results. Like it's 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 just as fun to watch. Awesome, Jenny. Oh well, actually, Tom, that's a really lovely build because I want to help brands get back to little Tom and your view of you know sport is just sport. So we have I can't give anything too much away, but some of the big brands we're working with, we're looking at campaigns that put the men and women side by side equally and celebrate the sport as a whole. And I think that's really powerful. It's as simple as kids in school uniform walking past a bus stop and seeing men and female footballers on that bus stop side by side rather than just male footballers. It's these small acts which may seem trivial, but actually in terms of society showing that, you know, it's as good in promoting it and getting people's attention. So that's where we're, we're what we're doing with our, with our brands at the moment and also showing them the business value, showing this amazing opportunity of a potential audience they can log and to future-proof their brand. So that, that's what I'll be focusing on for the next few months. Yeah, terrific. Um, yeah, as I alluded to earlier, um, if, if uh, you haven't sort of realized the generational and sort of cultural sort of movement around women's sport, um, you haven't been paying attention. So I think, you know, business-wise, um, FIVO, ultimately we sort of work with rights holders to help 
you know, sell more tickets, sell more merchandise and inventory and, and ultimately capture more consumer data. So we're leaning into this really hard. Um, you know, we work with all the NWSL clubs in the States, you know, trying to help them drive more sort of engagement and sell more tickets and build their audience. Um, as we sort of expand internationally, which is happening this year in the UK and Australia, you know, we go knock on sort of the Premier League clubs um, doors and they say, we don't need help selling tickets. We say, well, that's great because we're not here to help your men's club sell tickets. We're actually here to help you uh, capture a new audience and actually fill the building when you take the women's sport into, you know, the the larger venue, right? So um, just from a business perspective, you know, we're really trying to help drive sort of the audience and incremental revenue for the women's sport, not just because it's a good commercial opportunity, but because it's sort of the right thing to do. And we sort of recognize uh, this, you know, sort of cultural shift in sports. Um, and then, you know, personally, similar to Tom, uh, right? I have a four-year-old, um, you know, he's at that age where he's sort of experimenting with a lot of different things. Um, but obviously there's a big interest in soccer. And, uh, you know, as Tom said, right, there's, in, in my view, there's no difference in watching a, a men's match versus a women's match. It's sort of, making sure that you're, um, you know, sort of teaching your, the kids and sort of this next generation that equal pay and equal play and sort of equal opportunity is, is there. And, and that's super important. And we're going to have some fun doing it as well. So. Awesome. Well, I look forward to having uh, this same panel together in a couple of years to talk about all of the incredible progress that's happened since then. But up until then, um, if you liked what you listened to, please make sure to share your thoughts and comments on social. Uh, tell us whether you think that orange ad was uh, was fantastic or as my daughter might call it, a pile of poo. Um, <laughs> and please make sure to uh, connect with us uh, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like and subscription. Go to our website, sportsloft.co, and sign up to our newsletter and follow us on socials at sportsloftHQ. All that remains is for me to say a huge thank you to our guests for joining us. So a massive thank you to Jenny. Jenny, thanks for joining us for the first time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Uh, Josh, thank you very much for joining us as well. Thanks, Annie. This was super fun. And Tom, also, as always, great to have you back. Thank you. Thanks, Annie. Appreciate the chat. To the rest of you, see you next time in the Sportsloft. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>